You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, Episode 66. It was a very stressful situation to be sent to the hospital and be told, if you can't get your blood pressure down, you're being induced today. <laughs> it's sort of the worst thing you could tell yeah. somebody who's trying to... But what I found was I would put my headphones on, I would lie down on my left side, and I would start to listen to my hypnobirthing tape, and I would just really focus on the relaxation and my breathing, and my blood pressure numbers would just drop. And they would come in and sort of shake their heads and say, okay, I've never seen this work before, but I guess you can go home, you know? And this actually happened a couple of times. It was really instructive to me to see how that kind of relaxation and breathing could affect my body in, in these really significant ways. And honestly, it gave me a lot more practice too for the hypnobirthing techniques. Welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you like the show, we'd be so grateful if you'd write a review wherever you're listening to this. You might just get a shout out on social media or on the podcast if you do. Today, we share another double birth story shared by a dear friend of mine, singer-musician Linnea. Linnea first shares her first baby's birth story, which was a hospital induction with doula support attended by midwives. She details how her firstborn seemed to have a good latch, but ended up being dehydrated because she was doing non-nutritive sucking, and how the support of a lactation consultant made all the difference in helping resolve the issue to preserve not only her daughter's health, but also Linnea's milk supply, and ultimately their breastfeeding relationship. Due to some dissatisfaction with her experience in the hospital, Linnea subsequently makes distinctly different choices the second time around and chooses to give birth at home. Just need to give a quick content alert. Following the second birth story, there's a potentially stressful component for listeners as Linnea shares how her three-day-old suddenly stopped breathing and details doing mouth-to-mouth as they book it to the ER. Linnea miraculously saves her son's life and has an inspiring story to share about trusting your parental instincts. As always, please curate for yourself which stories you think will build your peace and confidence, and consider not tuning in if you think it might be triggering or anxiety-producing. Now let's jump in and hear Linnea's stories. Today I have with me a dear friend of mine, Linnea. Welcome, Linnea. Hi. Glad to be here. We go way back. I can't even remember how many years ago we met, but it's probably like going on 20 years or so. Yeah. No, I I think think it's pretty close. Yeah. If If it isn't, it's got to be really close to that. Linnea is an opera singer. She is our worship leader for Storia Community Church that we both go to. We're both members there. And Joe is a professor at Baylor University, but a program here up in New York that Baylor is my husband and my alma mater. So we have so many things in common with the music background and then Baylor and all, all those things. And she also teaches yep. our kids piano lessons, which we're so grateful for virtual right now, which has yes. been interesting, right? Yes. It's been a challenge, but they've actually 
really handled it really, really well. So I'm making good progress. I did a little introduction of you there, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit more if you don't mind? Yes, I am a musician by training. Opera has been my primary training and I was doing a lot more opera singing when I had my children. I'm doing less of it now, especially none of it during the pandemic, but I've also been a church musician for many years, play the piano and have led choirs and the music director at Astoria Community Church and worship director there. And yes, we live in Astoria. We've lived here since 2002. And my husband runs a program for Baylor University here in New York. So he's a college professor and runs that program here. And we love the city. He's film and digital media and communications professor. So film is kind of his area. So we love New York for many, many reasons. And we've loved raising our kids here. Bronwyn was born in 2005 and Mateo was born in 2009. So she's 15, almost 16, and he's 11. Very similar ages to our kids because we were born in 2005 and 2008. So our kids have been growing up together. Yes, <laughs> for many years. <laughs> so why don't we start a little bit with your first pregnancy and the different ways that you prepared for the journey into parenthood? Okay. So when I was pregnant with Bronwyn, I spent a lot of time reading and researching. I was excited about having a baby, but I also wanted to be prepared. My own mother had died um, at 49 of cancer, and so I didn't have her to ask questions. But she had had five children and loved the experience of childbirth, and she had done Lamas, and she had talked to me about the ways in which Really having specific birthing technique was important and practicing it and really being prepared for labor and not just kind of going in and hoping that it was all going to turn out okay. <laughs> so I felt like I had the concept of that in my mind, but I knew I needed to find my own um, birthing technique that would really work best for me. And I was hoping to find a team that I could work with that would also really be people I was comfortable with who understood what my husband and I were looking for. I realized during my pregnancy that particularly since my mother wasn't there to be with us at the birth, that I really wanted to have a doula who could be there and, and give us, since neither my husband or I had been through this yet, someone who could you know really give us some experience and support in that way. I had a relatively rough pregnancy in terms of nausea. I had quite a bit of it well into my second trimester. That was kind of difficult. And I had started off with an OBGYN that I didn't know very well, but had just been recommended to me by someone else. And my first few appointments there, I wasn't really thrilled with her approach to even just discussing the pregnancy with me. She had a pretty medicalized approach to birth. And she also just, I don't know, the first appointment spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how not to gain too much weight during pregnancy and things like this. And I just felt really weren't the most important focal points. Mm -hmm. And when I was struggling with the nausea, she gave me some medication and told me it was, you know, completely safe. And I went home and looked up information on it and really was not comfortable with the potential side effects and just wished that she'd had a more open conversation with me about some of those things. So mm. I think I was about five months in when I decided to make the switch to a midwife group and had done some research and was interested in giving birth in a birthing center. If possible, there weren't very many birthing centers in the city at that point. There still aren't. So that guided kind of where I, I ended up and I ended up with the midwifery of Manhattan 
It was Sylvie Blaustein and was really happy with them. They worked as a team. Sylvie was kind of my main midwife, but I would see the different midwives on the team when I would come for my checkups. And depending on who was on call, the weekend I you know, went into labor or, what, or whenever it was, I would get whoever was part of the team that was available. Their backup OBGYN was Dr. Jacques Moritz, who I also saw and really liked and ended up staying with him as my OBGYN after, afterwards. Who is highlighted in the Business of Being Born documentary. Yes. Yeah. And very supportive and very supportive of midwifery and healthy, mm-hmm. unmedicated births. And so it was really great to be introduced to all of them. And I just felt much more comfortable in that setting. Overall, other than the large amount of nausea, I, I had a pretty healthy pregnancy. But towards the end of my pregnancy, started to have some trouble with high blood pressure. And I didn't really understand very well the idea of white coat syndrome at that point. But what was happening was that, you know, I would go in for these checkups and my blood pressure would be higher. And at home, we learned how to check it at home because they were concerned about it. And at home, we would check in and it would be fine. So it became more and more frustrating as we went along because I would go in and, you know, it would be high again and they'd be worried. And and it was hard to know how much to make of it. But because it was my first pregnancy, they were taking it seriously, of course. I didn't have any of the other symptoms of preeclampsia. They were checking my urine for protein and none of those things were coming back in a worrisome way. But they were getting increasingly concerned because it was still high when I would come in for my checkups. I'm sort of jumping around a little bit, but as I was trying to figure out which birthing technique I wanted to do, I was reading about a number of them. And I also spoke with the midwives at Midwifery of Manhattan. And they had recently had a woman in their practice who had had a really great experience with hypnobirthing. And they suggested that I check it out because they had just seen some really good results. So that was one of the ones I looked at seriously, and I ended up deciding that that was what we were going to use for our labor technique. I was looking into classes to do some training, and they were all full. So I ended up getting a teacher who was able to come and basically just do a private session kind of intensive Mm -hmm. with us. And it was just one, but I got the books and I read them. And with hypnobirthing, uh, a lot of it is really practicing the relaxation techniques ahead of time. It's not that the techniques themselves are so complicated. It's that repetition, practicing them really develops the ability to then relax on command in specific ways in connection with certain triggers and things like that in the labor setting. And it was also really helpful for me to understand the way in which the muscles worked during labor and the way in which relaxing certain muscles would allow labor to go more smoothly, allow the cervix to open, all of those things, the visualization of how that worked was really helpful for me. And as a singer, all of the abdominal musculature was something that I was already using in very specific ways to breathe correctly and support my singing. So a lot of that musculature was was more familiar to me than it might have been to some And it was helpful for me to visualize how I would need to be using that in labor. So all of those things connected for me to really make sense for why hypnobirthing was interesting to me and felt like a good fit. I was taking also some prenatal yoga classes during that time. And one specifically 
with a teacher whose name I can't remember, but she was really focused on good training techniques for trying to protect the abdominal muscles during pregnancy and specific abdominal exercises to try and help those muscles both stretch for pregnancy and also learning how to use your abdominal muscles to push correctly in labor. I specifically remember one of her recommendations was learning to pull the abdominal muscles back towards your spine before pushing down. And she said something that, you know, anytime you're having to sort of bear down, it's really helpful to first pull in the abdominal wall, you know, into your back and then bear down and that that made a big difference. So, you know, things like that I was practicing that were helpful for me both to practice them, but also to visualize and understand what was going on. And it was at that class, actually, that I got the recommendation for my doula, who we did hire. But so I was practicing. I had with hypnobirthing, I had a relaxation tape. I was using the rainbow relaxation one that comes with the original book. And I would lie down for half an hour and listen to the tape and practice kind of the guided relaxation. My husband and I also practiced some sort of guided relaxations. There were certain exercises that we would practice together and doing them together was part of what was helpful. But as I was continuing to have issues with the high blood pressure, one of the things I found was that the relaxation practice that I was doing was something that was actually helping me when I had high blood pressure. And I actually got into a situation several times where I, towards the end of my pregnancy, where I went in and they said, we're worried about this. We need to send you to the hospital for observation. If your blood pressure can't come down, you're going to have to be induced. And this, knowing what I knew about first pregnancies and first pregnancies being induced early, I very much did not want to be induced. I was very concerned about not ending up with a C-section for health reasons, but also as a singer, it was a real concern of mine because of my abdominal muscles and C-sections can really permanently affect abdominal muscles in some cases. So I was really not wanting that to happen. So I really didn't want to be induced and I wanted my daughter to be able to stay in as long as she needed to. So it was a very stressful situation to be sent to the hospital and be told, if you can't get your blood pressure down, you're being induced today. It's kind <laughs> Not of the helping worst. the blood pressure. <laughs> no, it's sort of the worst thing you could tell yeah. somebody who's trying to. But what I found was I would put my headphones on, I would lie down on my left side, and I would start to listen to my tape. And I would just really focus on the relaxation and my breathing and my blood pressure numbers would just drop because they were monitoring me. So and cool. so, and they would, they would come in and sort of shake their heads and say, okay, I've never seen this work before, but I guess you can go home. You know, And this actually happened a couple of times. It was really instructive to me to see how that kind of relaxation and breathing could affect my body in, in these really significant ways. And honestly, it gave me a lot more practice too for the hypnobirthing techniques because I was so focused on just getting through the end of the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I basically made it to my due date and was in the same situation. And they had done some stress tests on Brahman. She was doing fine. She never showed any sign of any kind of trouble. They really had nothing except the high blood pressure numbers to give them concern. But once I got to my due date, they said, you know, we've let you get this far. And actually 
they said, we've never had anybody with your issue get this far. And I was like, you know, well, I want to keep going. And they're like, you don't realize that you've made it a lot further than we thought you would. Mm -hmm. So they said, we need you to come in and be induced now because now you're at your due date. We don't want to push this any further in case this is preeclampsia. So with some trepidation, we came in and I had had several friends who had had experiences, something like this, and they had been given Cervidil and it had been enough for them to go into labor and they didn't have to do the Pitocin. So this was kind of my great hope that I could have Cervidil, have it overnight and be in labor by the morning and not have to do Pitocin. So I mentioned it to some of the nurses and they were they said, Probably oh, skeptical. Yes. They were very skeptical. This doesn't happen very often, you know. And I was like, okay, well, this is my plan. <laughs> <laughs> One can so, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the other thing was that they were worried about my blood pressure during labor. If it was high, you know, in these circumstances, would it spike during labor? And so they wanted to monitor that. And so we went in that evening and Joe was able to stay with me, which was great. And they gave me the Cervidil. And I had, you know, as I talked about, I had a lot of breathing exercises and visualizations of trying to relax and open the cervix, you know, and the, and the muscles that, that control the cervix. So I did a lot of those that night. I was able to bounce on a labor ball. I was trying to do things to get things open, you know, and moving. And thankfully, although I didn't get a lot of sleep that night, by morning I was in active labor. So they said, okay, you're in active labor. We don't have to do the Pitocin. Let's just see how this goes. And so I had a day of labor and it was an interesting day in many ways because, you know, the labor was able to progress on its own. It wasn't being rushed by the Pitocin. And I found the hypnobirthing techniques really, really worked for me. It was nice because while I wasn't allowed to give birth in the birthing center because of my high blood pressure, but... The nurses on the regular labor and delivery floor were also trained to work in the birthing center. So they recognized and understood what I was doing with my birthing technique and that I wanted a quiet room. And actually, it was interesting because hypnobirthing, for me, it was very quiet. I was very focused on relaxation and Joe was very much a part of the work we were doing to help me relax. And I was also using the relaxation tape in labor played it over and over again, <laughs> but it really worked. So why stop something that's working? And, but it was interesting because the nurses would come in and say, this is such a quiet labor room. This is so calm and peaceful in here. You know? <laughs> and I was like, don't break my focus. But it was really, it was really working well for me. As the day went on, I was having a lot of back labor and my doula was helpful, not just for the support, the, you know, emotional support and kind of talking through things, but she did many hours of massage and just pressure on my back during contractions, which really helped me. And I was so glad to have both her and my husband because she was working on my back and he was with me talking to me face to face and I needed him there with what we were doing with the hypnobirthing. So if I hadn't had both of them, I felt like you know, I wouldn't have had what I needed to really labor well in this particular setting. And um, did your doula come, do you remember when she joined you? 
She joined us that next day. So she like when wasn't you were in active there, labor, probably. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. when we were in active labor is my mm-hmm. memory of it. Yeah, she, I don't remember her being there the night before. Yeah. So yeah, we called her once we were in active labor. And the other thing I wanted to just mention about the doula is that while I really liked my midwives and really enjoyed working with them in labor, the midwives are much more focused on the birth side of things and aren't able to stay with you and do the kind of support that a doula is. And so I really felt like every aspect of that team was really needed and I would not have wanted to dispense with any of them. And my doula was also really, she was supportive for me in particularly that hospital setting. She helped me kind of stand up for myself when I felt like I was kind of being pressured into some things. And so that was also just really helpful, especially for first-time parents. But so as the day went on, the labor was getting harder and harder and a lot of this back labor. And what was frustrating was I wasn't progressing as quickly as they had hoped, probably in large part because the back labor was difficult. What we found out later that we didn't know going into it was that Bronwyn was about a pound larger than they thought. She was almost nine pounds. And she was posterior, which ex- Ooh, which explains yeah. And they said later that often posterior babies can hide their weight; they look smaller on the mm-hmm. ultrasounds, and so those two things sort of went together. But it explained the back labor, and it explained the, Slow, the slowness, yeah. slow progress. Mm-hmm. And you know, the first baby too, which is going to be usually slower. I had really wanted to be able to you know, use different positioning. I was in the birthing center. I was really hoping to be able to use a tub because I'd heard such good things about that. So in the regular labor and delivery floor, they did have a tub. I had a bathroom with us, just a regular little bathtub, but they said that I could get in it. And I did. And it really helped me. I was at a point where I was getting pretty tired and the, the, the back pain was pretty severe. And I really was able to relax in that warm water in a way I hadn't been for a while. And it was kind of a a good break for, I felt like both for me and the baby. And a good friend of mine had come at that point just to check in and help and ended up staying, my friend Kim, ended up staying for some hours and helping to give kind of the doula a break or Joe a break. And she actually ended up being a friend I asked to be the doula for my second birth. But that sort of started there in the time she spent in this birth. But so she was with me as I was relaxing in the bath and sort of getting that break. But it was difficult because it was at that point that the midwives, instead of sort of letting us stay there, they felt like I couldn't stay in the bath because they were worried that it was going to slow labor down. And that I was on a schedule. The hospital had a set schedule of how much you had to progress in a certain amount of time. And if that didn't happen, they wanted to see interventions. And the midwives knew that I did not want interventions. And they knew that ultimately, I really didn't want a C-section. So they were sort of trying to help me navigate the pressure that the hospital was putting on the schedule. So I couldn't stay in the bath as long as I liked. And when I came out, it had slowed things down, which is often sometimes something that can be helpful in a long labor, but it doesn't fit into the kind of the hospital schedule that I was under. And so at that point, they said, we're concerned that if we don't do something to try and speed things up, you could end up with a C-section. And we know you don't want that. So I know you don't want an epidural, but maybe if you have an epidural, it will relax things and speed things up and the cervix will open. 
I really, really didn't want one. And I was, it was a hard thing to have to sort of agree to it as kind of a, you know, I, I knew I didn't want a C-section. Maybe if I did this other thing I didn't want, I could prevent that. I didn't feel like the midwives were pressuring me. They were just telling me kind of the, the way it was. But I felt very pressured by the, the schedule of the hospital because I didn't, while I was tired, I didn't feel like I had reached the end of my rope. I felt like my birthing technique was working. There was no sign that Bronwyn was under any kind of stress. Of course, they were checking for those things. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is that my blood pressure was perfectly fine for the whole labor, all of this long labor. Never had any issues. All that concern. Oh, wow. Never had any issues Mm. in labor with blood pressure. So there were no like, you know, flashing warning signs. It was just Mm. this hospital schedule. Mm -hmm. So I agreed to the epidural. And And can you tell me about how many hours this has been from the time that they started the Cervidil? So they started the Cervidil, I think it was about seven o'clock the night before. And this is probably now five o'clock the next day. And I'd started labor early that morning. So I had been laboring, you know, a good part of the day. But the concern was I just wasn't dilated enough at this point. I was certainly dilated, but I wasn't dilated enough. I think I was around five or six. And it was frustrating to go through a number of hours of back labor and then have them check and be like, it's not much bigger than you were, you know, it feels like it, that was hard. But Mm -hmm. I also, again, felt like what I was doing was working and it was hard. Once I had the um, epidural, it was difficult. I tried to continue the breathing exercises and other things I'd been doing, but it's pretty hard when you're numb to, to do some of those things and to figure out, you know, I was trying to do the ones that would help to open the cervix. And I did try and continue to do that during the time I had the epidural, but it was just hard to tell. And then unfortunately, as is often the case, the epidural, instead of speeding things up, it slowed things down. Mm. So then my contractions slowed down Mm. and they told me I had to have Pitocin which is yeah. so often the case with interventions is that one leads to another. Right. And these and, days, actually, often they just pair Pitocin automatically with an epidural. Many, yeah. many places do. Yeah. And I think in this case, they knew I didn't want Pitocin. So they were willing to sort of try it without. But I think, you know, they probably knew that was going to happen. I don't know. So then I had to have Pitocin and went through some hours of that. And then finally, it wasn't until about one in the morning that I was ready to push, that I was dilated enough to push. By this point, the epidural had basically worn off (laughs) in terms of pain. So I was back in the the pain, but they wouldn't allow me to, you know, do anything, any kind of other positioning for pushing. So I was on my back in a position that felt very, just very difficult to get, you know, any help of gravity or, or even sort of the kind of abdominal you know, support to really bear down well. So I felt like I was kind of in the worst of worlds and that I, you know, I was certainly in pain. I could feel it, but I wasn't able to move around or do the things that would have helped me. And I ended up having to push for three hours, which was a lot at that point. So this is my second night now. And they had had me on IV fluids because of, you know, once you put on epidural and all of that, they want you on IV fluids and they didn't want me you know, drinking and that kind of thing. And they weren't monitoring the IV fluids very well. They were just pumping a lot of them in. And the pushing was hard because I was on my back. And that was the only time the nurses I'd felt had been very sensitive and, you know, to my birth plan. But I had a nurse when I was pushing who was less than sensitive and was 
kind of had her own way that she wanted me to do it. And it was different from what I had been practicing. And she was kind of in my face and just telling me to do it this way. And, you know, at that point, you're pretty vulnerable. You don't have a lot, a lot left. And it was difficult to have to kind of deal with that. But I did get to a point where I really felt like I didn't have much left and I was Mm -hmm. worried. But they said, you know, you're close, just, you know, as hard as you can in these next couple pushes, give everything you've got. And finally, she came on those last few pushes. My doula was actually down watching her be born. And one of my concerns with the fluids was that my body actually had too many fluids at that point. And the tissues in my vagina, my vaginal tissues were really bloated by that point. And of course, they'd been under a lot of pressure from all of this long labor and pushing. And when she was born, I tore really badly. Oh, yeah. And the doula said she really felt like it was directly connected with the amount of fluids I had because she Mm -hmm. said she could just see the tissue just separate. And that was a factor, I think, in that. Mm -hmm. But Bronwyn was born crying loudly. She was very loud from... Practicing her singer vocal. Yes, from from minute one. And they brought her up to my chest and I was able to hold her and comfort her for a few minutes. And then they, you know, took her in the room still, but weighed her and, you know, cleaned her up. Joe was with her. But then she was, you know, able to stay with us. I did have to be sewn up for quite a while. I don't remember. It's interesting. I don't remember delivering the placenta. I think I was just so tired at that point. That wasn't something that stuck out. But they had to bring in another doctor to actually stitch me up because it was a pretty big job. And they Do you remember to... what degree tear it was? Well, I asked them some questions about it and it was like they didn't want to tell me. They said, it was really bad, but you know, you're going to be fine. And I said, well, how many stitches? And they said, you don't want to know. <laughs> so they really didn't tell me that. I had the same experience. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, sort, I, of, I, yeah. It was sort of like they thought that was going to, you know, make it better or something that if I didn't know, but of course I was the one that was having to live with it. And I knew, you you know, know. right. And I couldn't even, um, I couldn't even really walk in that first day or two. It was pretty, pretty painful. And I had a number of, I mean, walking was an issue for me for a number of weeks after that. I mean, I could walk, but just the pressure of being up on my feet was, you know, was painful, but I did heal up you know, without any other complications. I did sits baths and other things like that that I think helped. But yeah, it was a pretty significant tear, but I didn't ever get the details. And I, you know, again, I was a first time mom and I, I didn't push for some of the things I think I would have pushed for in another scenario. But we went to a, you know, regular room after that and Joe had to go home because it wasn't visiting hours at that point, which was fine because we were tired and I had Brahman with me. But it was kind of difficult because as much as I had appreciated the nurses in the labor and delivery, in the recovery, the care wasn't as helpful. And like, I wasn't supposed to get out of bed and go to the bathroom. I had to call someone to ask me to come and help me. And I waited almost an hour at one point. Kidding. And I finally just called Joe and said, I'm sorry, you just need to come back because I can't get help and I need to go to the bathroom and I can't get out of bed, you know. And at one point I remember asking for an ice pack because the localized painkiller was wearing off and it was quite painful. And the nurse took a surgical glove and stuck ice in it and tied it a lot <laughs> and handed it to me and said, these are our only ice packs. But it, you know, as soon as the ice melted, it leaked all over the place. And I, then mm-hmm. I was just wet and in pain. So 
Uh, I wasn't very impressed with that, with that level. You know, in New York City, you think you right, get a you little would bit think. better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a shared room. So we soon had another, you know, newborn and her family and, you know, babies are crying at different times. That's not an easy thing. But for the most part, it was fine. We were just eager to go home as soon as we could. I, I was eager to have a lactation consultant just check in with us just because I knew how important it was to start nursing off well. And they were able to get someone who came by and checked her latch and said her latch was good. But Brownman was crying quite a lot, especially the following night. And they, you know, we couldn't quite figure out why she was so upset. And they said, well, maybe she just needs some formula. And I really didn't want to do that because I wanted her to be breastfeeding. And she was latching well. So, you know, they said sometimes babies are just fussy and they're just getting adjusted. And so we went home the following day and we continued to feel like she was crying quite a bit at certain times. And she wasn't interested in a pacifier at all. She would suck on one of our fingers. That was sort of the only thing that would soothe her. And she was nursing, but I was starting to be concerned that she wasn't getting enough or wasn't getting milk um, or colostrum at that point, because I started feeling like she was looking maybe a little dehydrated. She had some dry skin around her mouth and on her lips. And I just felt like she wasn't happy (laughs) and she wasn't, you know, after she would nurse, it didn't seem like she was comforted enough and full. So we actually ended up looking around sort of quickly for a lactation consultant who could see us on short notice because I was really getting concerned about Bronwyn and thinking, even though I was a brand new mom, I just felt like something wasn't right. And the hospital had said everything was fine, but I just, I could tell something wasn't right. So we found someone who could see us that day. We drove down to Brooklyn and... Oh, you had to go somewhere. Yes, we did. And that was hard. But again, it was last minute and I was just glad anybody would see us. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember. It may have even been a Sunday. I think it was maybe a weekend or something. You know, there was some, but I didn't want to wait another day because I was concerned about her. Mm -hmm. So it was very helpful. I'm so thankful we did it because she watched Bronwyn nursing and she said that while Bronwyn was latching correctly, that she was not sucking correctly. And she was doing what was called a non-nutritive suck. And she said babies can often learn this if they suck on a finger or a thumb in the womb. So when you're sucking on your thumb or your finger, you're sucking in a little bit of a different way than you need to suck to actually get milk out of a breast. And so she was sucking, but she wasn't sucking correctly. And so she wasn't actually getting anything out of me. And that was why... (laughs) She was thirsty, hungry, poor thing. So the solution that the lactation consultant recommended to us was an SNS system. Is that is that what they're called, Lisa? I'm trying to remember myself. Yes, that's right. Supplemental nursing system is what right. SNS stands for. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And it's basically a little tiny tube that you have to tape to your nipple. And it has a formula, it has a little bag that has a little bit of formula that comes down through that tube. And so when the baby is nursing, she gets a little bit of that formula in her mouth. It causes her to swallow and kind of gulp. And that kind of jump starts the correct sucking. And she starts to understand how to suck correctly to actually get her food. So 
while I was reluctant to have to do any formula because I was hoping to just do breast milk, I understood the purpose of this. And it was actually a very small amount of formula in the end because we only had to do it for a few days. But it was interesting because the gulping was one of the things that the lactation consultant was looking for. She was checking to see if she was sucking correctly. And she could see that she wasn't swallowing, she wasn't gulping. And that was one of the reasons she could tell that she wasn't actually getting anything. So that helped us understand what we needed to be looking for. And thankfully, that did the trick. And we were able to do that for a few days. And she adjusted well. And my milk came in. Because that's the other issue with non-nutritive suck is that it won't bring your milk in. You need that the stronger sucking yes. in order mm-hmm. for the milk to come in. So that was something else I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I was really thankful for that lactation consultant and that we, you know, knew enough to get her help and it really made the difference and Brownwin adjusted well. And yeah, so I was really thankful for a lot of these different things, even though the birthing experience didn't end up fitting our birth plan. We were very thankful to have a healthy baby at the end and to not have to do a C-section. And I was really impressed with how hypnobirthing worked through all of those hours of labor. It really did make a difference. So, yeah. And one thing I'm hearing that I just want to reiterate is that you really laid that foundation, that groundwork that you said how important it was to have done that prenatally, yes. because if you don't do it until that big day, it's not going to be as powerfully helpful. Yeah. Right? I don't think it would have helped me much at all because what was so helpful was that certain things had become second nature and my body had learned to respond to certain triggers mm-hmm. in in a really direct kind of one-to-one way. So some of those triggers were exercises that Joe and I did together and he would just start them over and over and we would do them spiraling the pain away and, you know, these very different Mm -hmm. things. But the other was that tape. I mean, it was kind of a cheesy tape and the music wasn't that great. And, (laughs) you know, everybody in the hospital who was in my room had it memorized by the end, but it worked. It worked for me. And I was just like, I'm sorry, turn it over and start it again. Because because I would hear certain things and I could just feel my body relaxing and mm-hmm. I could feel the pain being, you know, manageable. So it was just, it was very directly helpful, but that wouldn't have been there for me if I hadn't done that time practicing, mm-hmm. you know, when I was pregnant. And besides it helping my blood pressure, it was also a good practice for me just to force myself to rest, especially in those later months of pregnancy where you're supposed to be getting off your feet and lying down a little bit more and stuff, having to practice the relaxation technique was was something that also got me off my feet, got me to lie down, got me to slow down. That's not usually my gift. <laughs> I'm not a big napper. So it was it was a good thing that kind of forced me into some things that I think were helpful for a number of, of reasons. Mm. Do you know if Bronwyn rotated into anterior position before she was born or no. not? No, no, she didn't. She came out. That's it's remarkable exactly. that a nine pound baby in posterior position was able to come through your pelvis. That's yeah. Well, and I think that's another something. reason partly too, that I tore. So yeah. That, that, oh that, yeah. I don't doubt that, that at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And once we kind of knew all those things, looking back on it, it, it made more sense of it, but it mm-hmm. was hard as I was in the midst of it, not sure. really knowing why this was so hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the midwives did say, we're starting to think she might be posterior, you know, 
But yeah, and that was also, you know, I wish had I known more and had I had more freedom to try some different positioning and things like that, I think it would have made a difference for me. Sure, because being on your back is not going to help the heavier part of the head to rotate to your belly. (laughs) Right. It was basically the worst Mm -hmm. position I could have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've had more experience since then, even with other friends giving birth and seeing how those kinds of positioning changes make a difference. Mm -hmm. So I wish I had had that. And I wish Mm -hmm. I had... I mean, even going into labor, if we'd known that she was posterior, we could have anticipated some of those things better. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I wish they would just check that out in triage, you yeah. know, when we arrive. That should be standard. Yeah. You know, I, um, I was I was really surprised to find out that they didn't know that. And even things like the weight differential, you know, they, they tell you you can't know for sure when they give you the estimated weight. But if they knew that the baby was posterior, they could also say, it's likely this baby's bigger than we think, too. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. of that, that they hide their weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting thought. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to share about that first experience? Um, I don't think so. I mean, as difficult as the hospital experience was, I remember coming home and just being so thankful to be home <laughs> and so thankful to have a healthy baby and so thankful, even though it hurt a lot to walk around with her outside and she was very strong and alert from the beginning. And like I said, very loud. The nurses at the hospital kept saying, boy, she has got a set of lungs on her. (laughs) And I was thankful in many ways for those things because I had been concerned with all these interventions about how they might impact her. So I was thankful that she was, you know, so vigorous from the beginning. One thing I did learn that I wish I'd known more in retrospect, she was always a good nurser and we nursed for a long time, but she was also a huge spitter upper and sometimes would spit up, you know, almost as much as she had just nursed, which was very frustrating. And I wish I'd known what I know now, which is that there were probably some food changes I could have made to my diet that might have really impacted that. And I did actually learn later after my son was born that I had a gluten intolerance that had turned into an allergy that I didn't know that I had. And I think that that could have been a factor in all of that. But I just didn't know enough then to realize that that was maybe an issue for her. Sure. Mm. Yeah, that spitting up can be yeah. challenging. My first didn't really do it, but but Ella, my daughter, projectile vomiting. Oh. I was like, what is happening? Yes. I mean, we didn't have any clothes that didn't have spit up on them <laughs> by the end. I mean, it was just, it was a lot. And, you know, you worry that they're not getting enough to eat because there's mm-hmm. so much being spit up. And there was a period where she was quite fussy, but then she kind of got through it and grew quickly. And so... Before Linnea goes into her second baby's birth story, just a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by the Birth Matters Complete online course. If booking live group childbirth class just doesn't work for your busy schedule, or if you're suffering Zoom burnout, there's another great option for you. The Birth Matters Complete course is an online self-paced version of my live interactive full class curriculum. It covers not only prep for an amazing birth with self-advocacy tips, best current evidence, and tips for partners, but also holistic postpartum wellness, breastfeeding, and newborn care. And to top it off, you get lifetime access so that you can use it as a refresher later in this or future pregnancies. How great is that? 
To get the benefit of a more personalized experience, you also have an option to add to the course a 30-minute virtual coaching session. This has been a really popular option during the pandemic. We're continuing to offer a large, limited-time discount for podcast listeners, as well as anyone who might be struggling financially through these times. So grab the promo code and purchase over at birthmattersnyc.com. Okay, now back to Linnea. So then let's go into your second pregnancy journey. Yes. So what was your pregnancy like? Anything to note about how that went and your um, choices of care provider and birth location? So my second pregnancy, it was easier in some ways. I still did have a lot of trouble with nausea, but it wasn't as extensive as it was with Bronwyn. I knew more about what I was doing, which was, you know, helpful, what to expect In the years between my pregnancies, I had started working with a Pilates instructor and was able to kind of do some more tailored prenatal Pilates work during my pregnancy. And I think that that was, that was really helpful for me. I did have both with Bronwyn and with Mateo, I did have issues with relaxin where just my hips and my back got quite painful just with all of the sort of extra movement that was happening because of the relaxin. So I had to be more careful in that second pregnancy about the shoes that I wore. You know, as a New Yorker, you're walking so much. And I had to really be more careful about what shoes I was wearing and just how much positioning for things like getting in and out of cars or anything where I would sort of had to move my legs sideways could be quite painful. But knowing what that was, I felt was helpful because I understood that I hadn't suddenly developed a terrible back problem, but this was something that was specifically pregnancy related. Were you ever diagnosed with symphysis pubis dysfunction? No, and I didn't really, you know, I never really had it checked out in that way. I was aware of what it was, and if I was careful about it, I was okay. So Mm -hmm. I just didn't really pursue it that much in Mm -hmm. that way. But When you um, said getting into and out of cars, that was what made me wonder if there was that issue in the front of your pelvis. Yeah. Because that can really be triggering the yes. like separating a leg to get into a car. That was, yeah. Well, that really was one of the hardest things or any, mm-hmm. any movement that was that kind of separating a leg to step over something or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's possible. Hmm. I just never really. But not diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of sort of the decisions we were making about hospitals and labor decisions and all of that, having had the experience in the hospital with Bronwyn, I really didn't want to end up in a scenario again where I was under that kind of pressure to deliver on a schedule, particularly if everything else was looking fine and the baby was healthy and I was healthy. I wanted to have more freedom to deliver at my own pace. So I was looking into birthing centers again and Having had the experience with trying to do a birthing center the first time and not being allowed to birth there, I talked to several different midwives in several different hospitals and basically got a midwife who I appreciated because she was really very honest. And she said, look, the the fact of it is there aren't that many birthing centers and the rules are so strict with them that very few people who even try and give birth there actually get to give birth there. Yeah. It's so So, easy to risk out. Yeah. So just be aware that you're more likely to risk out than not, especially if you risked out on your first one. And if that's your choice, that's fine, but just be aware that that's the case. And so I started talking with her about home birth 
possibilities. And she was really helpful in just kind of laying out the options there. And I started researching them more and met with a Kristen Leonard, who is a home birth midwife out of Brooklyn at the time. And we really, really liked her. And we really felt comfortable with her approach and her setup. She is a very experienced midwife and well-trained midwife and had a, you know, a doctor backing her up in a hospital. And my pregnancy was healthy. I was healthy. And we just felt like this was what we wanted to do. So we decided to, to do a home birth with Mateo. And I remembered my good experience in the bathtub with Bronwyn. So we decided to rent a birthing tub that we could blow up and put in our living room and fill up ourselves. And so we, you know, kind of went through figuring that out, where to rent it. And do we buy one? Do we rent one? You know, all of those options. I asked my friend Kim, who had helped that time during Bronwyn's birth, if she would be my doula. And I was going to continue to do hypnobirthing as well because I felt like it worked so well with my first birth. One of the things that was wonderful about having Kristen as our midwife was that almost all of my prenatal appointments were at my house. She just came and so laid down on my own couch. And that was so great. It was so nice to not the be... The best. Yes. <laughs> not be hauling my pregnant body into the city. And especially with my white coat syndrome issues, I felt like, yeah. you know, all of that trouble and everything was sort of part of what led to those issues. And right. while I still had some issues with blood pressure going up, some when Kristen would check it, it was still pretty clear that it was kind of related to me worrying about, because when Joe would do it, it would be yeah. fine. And I could also demonstrate how I could just have it come back down as soon as I did my relaxation stuff. And that in itself was a sign that this was not sort of a systemic preeclampsia problem, but it was more, you know, around me worrying about my blood pressure. And it was helpful because Mateo was due the 1st of July and it was hot and having, you know, it was so nice as it got hotter to not have to go out into the city for appointments and stuff. So I did have my regular ultrasounds. I did things like, you know, the diabetes test and, you know, these other glucose tests and other things like that at the hospital. But but my regular prenatal appointments were at home and that was wonderful. So the pregnancy really progressed fine. There weren't some of the scares and worries that we'd had with Bronwyn because we were worried less about the blood pressure thing. But Mateo was due the beginning of July and my aunt who had come to be with me after Bronwyn's birth planned to come and be with me for Mateo. And we sort of figured out a date we thought would be likely and she came and he still wasn't there. <laughs> And she had to go back to another commitment. So we tried everything we could think of to get him to come. <laughs> I was going up to Astoria pool and swimming because I was big and huge. And, you know, I was walking as much as I could. We tried acupuncture. We tried, you know, you name it, the list of the sort of natural things you can do. We even did castor oil. And he just would not budge. And my aunt eventually had to leave, which was really sad. It's and too bad. Yeah. And we basically got, I got to two weeks past my due date and, you know, there weren't any like big things happening, but Kristen was saying, you know, we have to start figuring something. I can't just let you go and go. And I really think we need to go in and have you do a stress test and, and just make sure that he's doing fine. I had been doing some tests along the way and everything looked good, but you know, here I am two weeks past. And, you know, she said, I think 
the time has come. I'm sorry to tell you, but you know, he doesn't seem to want to come. I had been having, you know, sets of contractions here and there during those days and they would start up and I'd get excited and then they would just fizzle out. So, you know, there were things happening, but nothing that was really leading to labor. And so she had said on the 14th, or she'd said that she wanted me to go in on the 15th and it was supposed to be a really hot day and I wasn't feeling great. And I just begged her, I said, can I just have one more day? And if he doesn't show up tomorrow, I promise I will go in the next day. And she said, okay, all right, one more day. Let's see what happens. So we took a walk to the park that day and got some pizza on the way there. And on the way back, I was not feeling great. And I thought, why on earth did I eat that pizza? That was terrible. <laughs> you know. And I thought it was the pizza. But by the time I got home, I started realizing maybe this is more than the pizza. Maybe this is really labor. And then contractions started, but they had sort of fizzled out before. So I didn't know if I should get my hopes up. So I was sitting on the bed trying to sort of do final emails and do some work for church and for about an hour and the contractions were continuing, but they were light. They were, you know, I was able to sit there and write email. And so we called Kristen and said, you know, we think things are, are going now, but it's still early. You know, I was thinking about how long my labor had been with Bronwyn and thinking, you know, Sometime tonight, you'll probably need to come up here and check on us and see how we're doing. But I was thinking I had quite a bit of time. So Joe was getting the tub blown up, but it still didn't have water in it yet. And we hadn't changed some of the sheets on the bed to our like special sheets for, you know, we'd gotten old sheets to protect the bed and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And suddenly after about an hour of just easy, these easy contractions, suddenly they got much, much more intense, just kind of you know, from zero to 60 in a minute kind of thing. And that was a real surprise because nothing like that had happened in my first labor. And I was anticipating that it would sort of gradually build. I hadn't even really been doing a lot of my technique stuff yet because I hadn't needed to. I could just kind of breathe through the contractions and, you know, I was doing that kind of stuff, but I wasn't having to really focus. So I called Joe and I mean, he was in and out, but he was trying to get the tub set up. <laughs> I said, I need you. It's getting really, you know, tense all of a sudden. So he called Kim, our doula, who thankfully was just down the street and told her to come. And she got there and he was frantically trying to get the tub filled up because that takes a while. Yeah. And, you know, he thought he had hours and he didn't Came have hours. my husband our second time around. It sounds very familiar. <laughs> so, you know, he was in the living room trying to do that and I'm screaming in the bedroom. And so Kim was able to come and help. But shortly after she got there, my water broke on the bed still. And again, just much earlier than we expected. And I was already to a point where I wasn't sure I could make it to the living room. Like it was so intense and the contractions were coming so quickly, but they were, and I was, you know, I was still wearing the clothes I'd been wearing that day. I mean, I hadn't done all the things I thought I was going to get to do. Thankfully, between one contraction and the next, they kind of took me both on each side and just kind of hustled me into the tub in the living room. We realized later that Joe in his hurry to get things filled up had forgotten to put the liner in the, in the, <laughs> Oops. Was not what we're supposed to do. We had to <laughs> sterilize it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a little crazy, but I did make it in. And we had also decided to have our daughter Bronwyn, who was four at the time, be present 
for the birth if she wanted to be, because the last time had been so quiet and so calm. <laughs> and, you know, we thought, well, she won't be scared. I'm not going to be screaming. It was, you know, it was quiet and calm and, you know, hypnobirthing. Well, that was not the case here because <laughs> it was happening so fast. She was there and we could have sent her to our friends down the street, but she was doing fine. Actually, she was quite interested in it, but it was difficult because I was already starting to feel like I needed to push. And I thought something was wrong because I thought there's no way I could possibly be ready to push yet. But when things had gotten intense in the bedroom and I was still in the bedroom, we did call Kristen and say, it's gotten really fast, really quickly. Can you please come? And thankfully, Kristen was already on another call that was already sort of in our direction. If she had been all the way down in her home in Brooklyn, I'm not sure she would have made it in time. But she was able to come straight from another call. And she walked in the door. I was in the tub and I was on my knees. I found that that was a better position. And Joe was able to sit on the couch and I was able to kind of put my head and arms in his lap and, you know, use that pressure through the contractions. The other thing that I found was that I was actually sort of using my singing in a way that I hadn't expected. I had heard of singers who found that singing through labor was helpful for them. And I couldn't quite figure that out compared to the hypnobirthing technique had worked for me. But in this case where it had come on so quickly, what I did find was that when the contractions were bad, there was sort of like a certain pitch that I would hit. And it was like I had to find the right pitch for each contraction. And then I would just hold that pitch pretty loudly, but it helped for whatever reason. And some of it, I think, was the pressure that's created. It just kind of helped push against all of those contractions. So I was kind of probably sounded more like keening or something, you know, but just a really high pitch, you know, and it helped me. So anyway, Kristen came in and immediately checked me and said, you're ready to push. And, you know, the whole process was maybe two hours. I'm not sure it was even two hours long. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, you know, in retrospect, if I had not been doing a home birth, I wouldn't have made it to mm -hmm. the hospital because I wouldn't have gone to the hospital in that first hour when I was sitting there right. doing email. Right. Um, and then yeah. suddenly what we realized later was that I basically was transitioning in the bedroom. So I went from, so my body, I think in those two weeks and those sort of contractions that would happen and then go away, my body was actually, I think, preparing for labor. And then when it came, it was just a lot quicker. It does sound that way. It sounds like, yeah, yeah you had this sort of prodromal labor happening maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was just days. so light that mm -hmm. it just, you know, but so when Kristen came in and said I could push, I think I pushed three times and he came out. I mean, it was <laughs> the three hours of, you know, labor pushing with Bronwyn. It's a very different experience. I was still on my knees, which worked well for me. Kristen caught him under the water and brought him right up. And he cried right away as well, not as loudly as Bronwyn. Right after birth, you know, we were talking to him. He was looking at us. I was in the tub and my family was around me. And uh, Kristen was a little concerned with his color. He wasn't pinking up as quickly. So she took him and kind of cleaned him out a little bit and did a little bit of breathing into his mouth because she felt like he was not... He wasn't crying. He had stopped crying as much. So that was a little concerning for a few seconds, but thankfully he responded right away and started breathing fine on his own and pinked up then. And he was very alert and very just kind of eyes wide open, looking right into our eyes in a way that he just was really alert, but happy too. 
So, and I do remember delivering the placenta. I was still in the tub and was not really wanting to do any more contractions, but it wasn't, thankfully it wasn't difficult. And then, you know, I, I was sort of just happy to just stay there for a while because <laughs> it felt relaxing, but you know, then Kristen got me up and we got cleaned up and got into my own bed. And it was just so wonderful to be in my own home, in my own bed with my baby and friends bringing food. Friends were able to come down the street and family later that night and meet him. And it was just such a lovely, warm, wonderful experience. And it was just such a contrast <laughs> to being in the hospital after the birth the, the first time. And I just was really, really thankful for it. And Kristen came the next day and checked him again, and he was doing great. She had done the checks the first day, and his APGAR score was great. But everything was looking good. And thankfully, he was a little smaller than Bronwyn, but also it was just a much easier birth. And I had not had to have any stitches or anything like that. And so I was feeling you know, better than I did after that first birth. It's always difficult after labor, but I wasn't in as much pain. And he was nursing well. But towards the end of his second day, I started noticing a few things that, even though he hadn't been out very long, I felt like didn't quite fit how he had been behaving. And it sounds strange to say this, but he was acting too sleepy in some ways, which, you know, newborns are obviously very sleepy. So how do you say a newborn is too sleepy? But he had been sleeping and waking and quite alert. And he was acting much more drowsy and kind of draggy and just sort of snuggling up and just not really waking up as much as he had been. And the other thing he was doing was he was doing kind of a funny little twitching, whereas his head was just sort of moving in this funny little twitching manner that I'd never really seen. And it just seemed a little too repetitive, you know, and I just felt like something wasn't right. But I didn't know how to trust myself because, again, I was, you know, the I just had a baby. I was tired. I was emotional. And I called my midwife and I told her what was going on. And she said, well, I saw him this morning. He looked great. There wasn't anything concerning, but you are his mother and you should trust your motherly instincts. Don't brush them aside because you're tired and hormonal. He's got chills hearing that. Take it seriously. Yeah. Yes. She said, you know, take him in, get him checked out. Don't, don't second guess yourself basically. Mm-hmm. And so I was still, again, the things he was doing were so mild, but I just wasn't a piece about it. So I asked a friend of mine who lived down the street who had had four children and had seen lots of babies. She'd just come down and take a look at him before we called the doctor to, to go in and get him checked out. So she came down. We were sitting on the porch. He was in a little bouncy seat in front of us, and we were watching him. And he suddenly made like this, his whole face kind of went like this and the color drained out of his face and he stopped breathing while we were watching him. And, you know, we said his name, we grabbed him. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't responding. So I immediately started doing mouth to mouth with newborns. You know, you do it over their mouth and nose. Had you taken a class? I had not. I had just read about it and seen people do it and just Mm -hmm. knew that that was what you were supposed to do with newborns. Thank God. But it was, it was just, I just was doing whatever I could. Mm-hmm. Joe started calling 911 and we realized we can't wait for an ambulance. You know, he's only a couple of days old and he's not breathing. We don't have the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we have a hospital 
not far from us. So we grabbed Bronwyn, who I don't think had any shoes on, and Kelly. <laughs> Kelly came with us to help us with Bronwyn. I, we found mm-hmm. out later we left our front door wide open. And we just ran off the because you ran do to the car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, we we ran to the car mm-hmm. um, and we're driving madly to the hospital and the ER. The whole way there, I was breathing, giving him mouth to mouth, and he was responding a little as I would breathe. So I could mm-hmm. tell that it was making a difference what I was doing, mm-hmm. and was sort of letting out little cries. But you know, so I ran. Once we got there, I literally ran, I ran right past triage. I just went right into the middle of the ER and said, my three-day-old baby isn't breathing. And they were wonderful in that they immediately responded and started trying to figure out what was going on. I had doctors and nurses around me right away, but it's a very small ER. It's, it was Mount Sinai, Queens. And they didn't have some of the you know teeny tiny pediatric tools that they needed. So that, for example, they were trying to get a line into him to give him glucose and they just didn't have the right size needle and they were really struggling to get a line into his vein. And while he, while that was happening, he started having a little seizure. And I said, is he having a seizure? Cause his limbs were kind of jerking a little and they said, yes. So it was, it was very, very frightening. And once they got the line into him and we were also having to hold oxygen on for him because they didn't have the right size, you know, oxygen mask for a teeny baby. Once they got the line into him, he was doing much better. But at this point, we had no idea what had happened and what was going on. And I called and spoke with Kristen because they were saying, we're going to have to do all these tests on him. And I was really worried about what we should be doing. And here he's so tiny and she said, you should go ahead and get the tests because she had had an experience with a family whose baby had a heart defect. And it was, you know, if they had known, they would have done some things differently. And, you know, when something like that happens with a brand new newborn, you just don't know. It could be any number of things. So they transferred us to Mount Sinai in Manhattan. And he went through a battery of tests, which was really difficult in this tiny newborn Thankfully, they allowed me to keep nursing him, but I was basically living in his PICU room and I was in a chair. So I had to sleep in a chair (laughs) a couple days after giving birth. That was difficult. And he developed jaundice and then that extended our stay. Mm -hmm. He had to be in the lights and all of that. And thankfully, after all of that testing and everything, which all came back negative, what they determined was that In some cases, apparently, baby's liver has to make a switch from being in utero when it's connected through the mother's liver system to working on its own. And it's kind of a reversal, apparently, postnatal that usually happens in most children automatically. In his case, for reasons that they don't know, and this is, I guess, when this happens, they don't really know why it happens. His liver didn't make the switch. And so it wasn't processing blood sugar correctly. And although he was nursing, he wasn't getting the blood sugar nutrients properly. And so he had a blood sugar crash. That's what caused his stopping breathing and the seizure. When they put the glucose line into him in the ER, that apparently triggered his liver to start working correctly. But the jaundice was also due to the fact that his liver had not been working correctly from the beginning. And that was partly why that happened. So... This was quite a shock to find out. I didn't know that this could even happen in newborns. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was very clear to me that had 
we not been watching him when this happened, he could have died. If it had happened at night, we would not have, he made no sound. So it was very clear to me that we were being watched over <laughs> and mm -hmm. that the Lord knew what was happening and that we were watching him and really paying attention to these very small symptoms that he had been, you know, just the fact that he seemed sleepier than normal and that he was kind of twitching in a funny way. Mm -hmm. That was, those were the only symptoms that his blood sugar was dipping too low. Mm -hmm. There's little that newborns can show. So it was concerning to me to realize this was a possibility. But mm -hmm. one of the things that I was thankful that all of the doctors assured me of was that none of this had had anything to do with his home birth. They said this God. happens in cases we don't know why it happens, but we do not regularly check baby's blood sugar at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And you would have already been home. If you'd had him at the hospital, he would have done just as well as he did with the midwife. He would have, you know, scored high in the APGAR and we would have sent you home. And this would have still happened mm -hmm. at the same time as it did. So it would not have been caught in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, were we to have another child, I would have definitely had them check the blood sugar just to see. That's not something that's normally done, but given mm -hmm. that that happened. What we ended up finding out later was that I had actually developed some autoimmune issues and some of which were connected with my liver. I had some health problems that started right after his birth that had been happening, but I didn't realize they were happening. And I think it's most likely that that was what caused the problem, that it was my liver that was an issue. And he had adjusted to that in utero, and that may be why his liver didn't make this. So I had that wondered that because I knew you had said you seemed to have some liver issues. Yes. And so when you were sharing this with me, I was like, huh, I wonder if there's a link. Yeah, I did much more reading and research once I learned that about myself. I didn't know that I was having those issues. I just was having these other health problems, and then it turned out that, that my liver was really an issue. And I did some more reading and research, and it really confirmed that that can be a connection. And that it was actually the reason why we didn't have more children after that, because my health issues were increasing. And the fact that it was probably a factor in this happening to him was scary, and we didn't want to have that to happen again. But thankfully, he is very healthy. 11-year-old has never shown any sign that this happened to him in terms of you know a detriment to his health. Thankfully, he was not without oxygen for long at all because I was giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth almost immediately, and the hospital was so close, and there was much to be thankful for. But it was a traumatic days in there, especially after this wonderful yeah. home birth. Then we ended up in the hospital in a way that we did not expect. Mm -hmm. But again, we were very thankful. And it was difficult a little when we came home with him and had to, you know, go to sleep and not have him be monitored. Yeah, but I bet. the wow. entire time he was in the hospital, they had him monitored mm -hmm. um, because they were checking very carefully to see if anything was going to go up and down with his blood sugar or his oxygen levels. And he was rock solid the whole time. There was never any sign of problem. So that was helpful to me when we came home that he, you know, that all that monitoring as difficult as it had been to go through was a confirmation that things were working correctly. So we were able to sleep and he was a good sleeper and a good eater. Thankfully, those things were not terribly affected by this experience. So, you know, there were ways in which he had to have antibiotics and other things like that because they just didn't know if there was an infection. They didn't know what was happening. So until they could figure it out, they kind of threw everything at him. And so there were ways in which we tried to be really careful 
with sort of helping rebuild his gut and things like that. But mm -hmm. he breastfed for a long time and, and it's been a very, a lot. Yes. Mm, well, thank God that you trusted your instincts and that you had a care provider, a midwife who validated your instincts and your wisdom as a parent, because a lot of our medical system, as you know, doesn't yes. affirm that. Yeah, no. And honestly, when I called her that day, I was really doubting myself and I was sort of mm -hmm. thinking if she tells me, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine, that I would just sort of take that mm -hmm. as a sign that I was being overreactionary or something. Mm -hmm. But that's not what she said. She said, mm -hmm. I looked at him, he looked great this morning, but you're his mom, you need to trust your instincts. And mm -hmm. that was the, kind of the, the thing I needed to keep paying attention to that voice in my head that was saying, something's not right. Yeah. But, you know, I had no idea it was anything as serious as it was, but I'm so thankful. And I think in Brahman's case, her situation with the nursing was less dramatic than this, but it was another situation where I had been told things were okay and I just felt like they weren't. And I just felt like even though you're getting to know your newborn, it's not like you've had weeks of time with them, but I just felt like there were changes happening that didn't match the little bit I knew of them so far. So yeah, I guess that the trusting yourself and taking that intuition seriously, I think is something that new mothers should really do. Absolutely. And, and if you can't find a provider or a professional who will take that seriously, then find another one who will. Move on. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. the professionals who helped me, the lactation consultant, and then of course the doctors with Mateo, you know, they did take it seriously and it turned out to be, there was really something there. So, yeah. And your first experience, it seems so obvious that we need to build into our standard of care, lactation support, in-home lactation support yeah. soon after birth in those first five days. Yeah. There are because so many... there's a lot of things that can happen, like happen right. to Bronwyn. Right. And it's not as simple as does your baby know how to latch or not? That sort of right. gets to be the focus. But, mm -hmm. you know, some babies are tongue tied and some babies, mm -hmm. I mean, there's all these different things that can be kind of subtle. Mm -hmm. And with both of my children, the time in the hospital or in Mateo's case, the home birth time, you know, the time immediately after birth, none of those problems showed up until just another day or two. And that other day or two is once you're home. And so if there isn't a way to have that support or have that check-in, I think a lot of things can get lost in those critical days. So, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, I think just a little bit more knowledge. I wished, for in Brahman's case, for example, that they had just caught the non-nutritive suck in the hospital. Mm -hmm. We were asking them to look at it, and she was crying and was acting hungry. But just giving her formula would not have solved that problem. I mean... She would have been less hungry, but we wouldn't have figured out what the problem was. Right. So, yeah, a little more mm -hmm. knowledge and just a little more attention to that, I think, makes makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. Recently, we had another mother share her baby's birth story, actually with the same midwife, and she was reflecting on the loss of her mother. Mm. Now she had lost her mother a bit more recently than you did when you became a mother, yeah. but she was talking about how nonlinear grief is mm -hmm. and how much 
this transition into motherhood took her by surprise in terms mm-hmm. of how heavy the grief came on. Do you have yeah. any reflections on that aspect for you in your journey? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that happens with grief is that as you go through your life, you encounter sort of all these different milestones, but also as you come to the different ages that your parent was, or, you know, different kinds of grief. But in my case with my parent, you start to have sort of new understanding of who they were as a person and how your relationship with them could have changed if you had had that time together. Certainly for me, I think I said at the beginning too, but, you know, my mother was, she was kind of ahead of her time in terms of, of thinking about birthing and how she did unmedicated with all of her children at a time when it was much less common and kind of had to fight a little bit more in hospital settings to get them to pay attention to what she was wanting to do. And so I remember her talking about those things when I was a child and just talking about how important that experience was for her. And it really gave me I think it gave me the perspective, even though I didn't end up doing the exact same thing she did in terms of like labor technique, I came into it with a perspective of, I want to know as much as I can about this. I know this is a natural experience. I know my body can do this. I want to, you know, empower my body to do this. I want to have people around me that think that way about it and don't treat pregnancy like a disease. You know, I just, I started off with that perspective and that really came from her. But it was so hard to not be able to talk with her about all of these things that I was learning and very hard to not have her there when I was in labor and to know my children. I named my daughter Bronwyn after her. And Hmm. one of the reasons I did that was that I wanted Bronwyn to have a connection to her grandmother and to want to seek that out for herself, you know, as she got older, sort of sharing a name and knowing that it was because of how close I was to my mother that I wanted her to also have her name. So there's no question that in parenting, the loss of her has sort of hit me in new ways and just made me more aware both of what I'm thankful for, the time that I had with her, but also, you know, made me wish so much that I could have had the experience of her being a grandmother and, and also just interacting with her more as an adult, having these experiences myself. So I think, and, you know, I was thankful my aunt was able to come and be with us. And that was something that she had made a promise to my mom about when my mom was dying, that she would do everything she could to, to help us. And she really has fulfilled that. And I've been so thankful for that because there are very few people, at least for me, you know, the time around birth and after birth, you're so vulnerable and it's not a time you want to be playing host to someone or concerned Mm -hmm. about how clean your house is or any of those Mm -hmm. things. You need somebody who you just feel completely comfortable with. And there aren't that many people other than my mom that I feel that way about, but my aunt, I do. And I was so thankful for that. So it's been a process for me of both coming to appreciate more my mother and the things I learned from her, even though they were long before I experienced them myself. And also to experience sort of the journey of understanding the ways in which that even not having her there, I could still 
benefit from that and benefit from the love of, of other people who were in my family and knew her. So yeah, it continues to be something that I grapple with. And as my children get older and I struggle with issues, you know, at these ages, and I wish so much I could talk with her about those things and that she could know them. But I also continue to think in my own parenting so much about choices that she made in her parenting that have continued to really teach and affect the choices that I make. So I've realized that what we teach our children sort of throughout their lives are things that may stick with them in ways we don't necessarily expect because they really have for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything that you haven't gotten to share that you would like to share before we start to wrap things up? Um, trying to remember. I think I said, but I did want to just reiterate that in my case with that second baby, with labor being so different, I talked to Kristen, my midwife, about it afterwards. And I said, you know, if I have another baby, is it going to be like five minutes? Like what's going to happen? Don't even hire a care provider. I know. I know. <laughs> and she said, you really can't anticipate it. She said, sometimes third babies, in my experience, do something totally different from the others, you know, but it was interesting. Yeah, I have always said, have heard that third baby is a wild card. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows why? But, you know, <laughs> she said, it's not that surprising that the second one is faster than the first. But this was particularly fast. But, you know, again, your body was preparing itself for labor in ways we didn't realize. But I just was, I think that Mateo, if I had been trying to get to the hospital, I think Mateo might have been born in a cab or something. You know, I mean, it just would have been such a stressful thing. <laughs> By the time I knew that I was in serious labor, it was kind of too late to go anywhere. Yeah. So I was really thankful <laughs> that we had a plan. You yes. know, we had to kind of hurry it up. If I did it again, I would have that tub filled up a little sooner. Yeah. But it was it was a great experience to be able to do that in a way that didn't involve hospital care, but was still very careful. I mean, you know, I felt Kristen's expertise and all of the, you know, checks she did and everything were if anything more detailed than what I experienced in the hospital. So, I felt very supported and it was just it was a wonderful experience. And, you know, the hospital experience afterwards was difficult, and I sort of worried that it would take away from the home birth experience. But once I got enough distance, I was able to look back and sort of see the difference and just really still be able to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you got the reassurance that it wouldn't have made a difference yes. where you gave birth. Yes. No, that I, was, I imagine that makes a big difference. It, w- it was very important to me. And I was very concerned. Mm-hmm. Of course, when it you know, when everything happened, we didn't have any idea what was going on. But that was something I was asking kind of throughout, like, I just want you to be completely upfront with me. Is there some way we could have prevented this? Would this have been caught in a hospital? And every single doctor I talked to said very clearly, this is completely unrelated to his birth. And this would not have been caught. This is not something we look for. We don't test blood sugar in newborns unless there's some other reason. And I had done, I think I said this before, but I had done the blood sugar tests. I'd done the glucose tests and stuff when I was pregnant. I was not having blood sugar issues myself. So it wasn't like I was, you know, skipping out on those kinds of things either. I had done all of that. And so, yeah, they confirmed that, which was very important to me because that was obviously a real weight on my mind. Was there something we could have done to, Mm -hmm. to keep this from happening? So it was both 
comforting, but also a little disconcerting when they said, no, this just happens sometimes. And we don't, you know, it also made me realize that, you know, some of the SIDS cases could Could be be this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. it, It is something that I've wanted people to know, just that this does happen in some cases. It's obviously not happening all the time, but it can happen. And so again, if you notice that things seem a little strange with your baby, take it seriously. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been really nice to hear even more details than I've heard before about both of your baby's births. Yeah. Again, everybody listen to Linnea when she talks about trusting your instincts. You are your baby's own best advocate. Yeah, it really is true. You don't have to be a medical expert to know something about your own child. Thanks so much for listening to that chat with my dear friend. I love how Linnea pointed out that her hypnobirthing techniques weren't just for coping well, but how effective the techniques were for actually helping relax her body toward progress. The idea of visualizing the cervix opening, the helpfulness in lowering her blood pressure, powerful stuff. I wanted to mention that the hospital midwife practice Linnea worked with the first time around, Midwifery of Manhattan, doesn't exist as a New York City practice anymore as of 2017, or else I would have linked to their information in the show notes. If you'd like to hear more about posterior fetal position, I provide more details on this in the end teaching notes in episode 19 of this podcast, so I'll link to that episode in the show notes for this episode. I also talk about posterior position in my own first baby's birth story in episode two. One thing I don't think I mentioned in those episodes is why a baby in this position can lead to a slower labor. In this position, the angle of the baby's head is less efficient at pushing the cervix open or helping the cervix to dilate in a face because it's a broader, less pointy part of the head on the cervix. And dilation and effacement are two things that must happen in order for baby to come through that opening in the uterus to be born. Not only that, but it's also a less than optimal angle of the baby's body in relation to coming through the birthing person's pelvis. In birth class, I talk about non-nutritive sucking because this is such an important concept to be aware of. When a newborn is sucking at the breast, it's important to always be sure that the baby is actually swallowing. You'll usually hear this with a little muffled k sound, but if you don't hear that sound, another way to determine if they're swallowing is to put your finger underneath their chin. If they're swallowing, you'll feel a little ripple there. You can test this by trying it on yourself. In baby Bronwyn's case, it seems she perhaps had adopted some less-than-optimal sucking habits in utero that caused her to do non-nutritive sucking. Another extremely common reason babies will do non-nutritive sucking is that they fall asleep constantly at the breast as they get the surge of oxytocin as well as warm milk. You'd think when they fall asleep at the breast, they'd fall off the chest entirely, but many babies will stay on and even keep sucking, but will shift to a weaker sucking pattern. It's so weak that they're not actually getting any milk, and as Linnea mentioned, a non-nutritive suck is also not adequate stimulation to the breast to effectively trigger milk production, so it's a double whammy. With the sleepy issue, it's important, particularly in the first two weeks of a full-term baby's life, to try to keep baby awake for a full feed, which means stripping baby down to just a diaper to get maximum warmth and skin-to-skin contact, and you might need to tickle or otherwise stimulate the baby to help them stay awake for a feed. Another way to help wake baby up midway through a feed before offering the other side is to do a diaper change. 
But whatever the case, monitoring for the nutritive suck is an important piece of information many nursing parents miss out on, so I wanted to be sure to give a little more detail on this today. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. I do have to just shout out. I had a very, very involved partner. I'm so lucky that I would have never have gotten through that many hours of laboring at home, you know, if it hadn't been for Scott. Having read the book, having talked to the doulas, you know, it felt like we were going through this together. And that was one of my intentions is that we were going to go through this experience together, no matter how it unfolded. And so I never felt alone. Uh, There was one or two times that he, you know, went to fill up, you know, the broth or something, and I would immediately call him back. He was just amazing. And so although I didn't have my doulas there, I felt like I had my doula proxy. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We will see you next week. And remember, you are your baby's best advocate. Trust your intuition. Trust your intuition.